0: what's your role in shaping the future? Do you feel empowered to take an active role to create the future that's important to you? Or do you feel like you're in a boat with no oars, heading down a river with a destination shaped by futurists and tech moguls? I'd like to introduce you to Jared Nichols. Known as the New Futurist, Jared teaches leaders, teams, and individuals how to think like futurists so that they can create the best future for themselves and the people they serve. His goal? To make the conversation about the future accessible to everyone.
1: When we think about the future and we think about people, we have to get down to the base level of what is actionable, right? You have to make the future and the conversation about the future accessible. If we just focus on, oh man, at some point, you know, this iPhone will be so small due to Moore's law, it'll be embedded into my chest and I'll be able to communicate with you through television. Right. (laughs) Okay, great. That stuff is cool, but you don't start there. Because right. what, what does somebody do with that when they don't even realize like how you arrive at that space? So the yeah. first place you have to start with is how we think. This is a big yeah. part of my work and my message is like what you think about the future is irrelevant. How you think about the future is what changes things.
0: So are you ready to shape the future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott and this is Humans Now and Then. So Jared, Thank you for talking today. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about this interesting point in time?
1: The coronavirus? The coronavirus. Love in the time of coronavirus. Yeah. Life in the time of coronavirus. Right. Yeah, it's, the, uh, it's a novel I'm working on at the moment right now. <laughs> so yeah, No. It, it is definitely interesting. I've had this conversation with a few folks. Uncertainty is where the real opportunity is. That sounds like it's just a great poster or a great little quote, but it's a real thing. Yeah. And what I mean by opportunity is in situations like this, like what we're seeing right now, everybody is batting down the hatches. They're all mm-hmm. hunkering down, uh, waiting for this thing to pass so they can get back to life as as it was. But, right. but that's I think that's a problem that we keep running into. We go through a big shock to the system. Obviously, 9-11, the financial crash in 2008. Uh, and now here we are. These unexpected right. events. To me, there's a couple things that come out of this. Number one is that it's the way I like to describe this is a shot across the bow. This is a shot across the bow to show how fragile our system is, how much we've been relying on this idea of a solid, secure global economy, supply chains, everything. Yes, if we want to get into little micro areas, go, oh, it's really secure over here, but we have to look at this entire world as, as one big ecosystem. Right. And there's just a lot of evidence that the current structures and systems we have in place here in the U.S., for one, we're not prepared for something like this. I mean, God forbid the coronavirus was worse than it is now, right? What if, and not what if, but when something much bigger comes across and we are not prepared for it because we have not thought long term about the implications of what we do today, then we're in big trouble. And the problem, I think, is that our entire incentive structure in the Western world, for sure, and in the US in particular, is based on short term intervals, 90 day turnarounds. We cannot survive like that. We just can't. Because the idea is, you know, and that's tied to the fact that we're a consumer based economy. Well, it has to be 90 day turnarounds, because we have to increase uh, our profit margins, so we can go out and buy more crap that we don't actually need. We need the supply chain Right. To make sure we get all the crap we don't need. and right. uh, It's just it's madness when we really stop. So my hope is that in this time we step back and we really take a look at all of our structures and our ideas and our paradigms, if you will, and say, how do we change this to ensure we're not in this situation again? Right. but That we're prepared when something much bigger comes across.
0: Yeah. And I've got so many things to add on to what you just said. One of the things that kind of jumped in my mind, let's talk about innovation for a second.
1: Because you're talking about the
0: crap that we don't need. Uh So a lot of focus is around, you know, showing an increase in innovation based on the number of patents, for instance, or based on the number of new things. Whether those new things provide value or are viable in the market might be a different question. So I'd be interested to know how do organizations think about a more valuable innovation stream when they think about the future and how to apply what they know or or their areas of expertise into what a future product or service might look like like?
1: Well, there's two things in particular that I think need to happen. Number one is leaders and organizations that are responsible for new product development have to, one, get really clear on how they define innovation. Bottom yeah. line. Everybody loves to talk about it. Very few people know what it is. You know, when I think about innovation, innovation is not something that is a, a, a feature, a switch, a flip. It's something that fundamentally changes the game, yeah. Right. It's not something that allows you just to enhance business as usual. It actually throws a big wrench in the system and causes a genuine disruption to the idea or the value that this way of doing it or this product, the solution to a problem we used to have is now being solved at a much lower cost and in a much faster, more efficient way. That's where real innovation comes in. That being said, organizations that love to say, we want to be really innovative. When you start to break it down and say, well, to truly be innovative, this is what it means in a number of ways. A truly innovative organization is one that intentionally disrupts themselves. And nine out of 10 organizations will say, no, thank you. We'll just go back to talking about it and make slight tweaks. Yeah. And hope that nobody else figures out that this isn't innovation. Right. So that's the problem. Right. So when you look, so the other part of that is that if they want to use their talents and skills to develop new products, systems, processes across the board, they first have to start in a future context. This is important because a lot of decisions are made based on projections and predictions about the future, which have a notoriously bad track record. They do coming from a futurist. Don't trust people that are predicting the future. They're full of crap. They are. You can't predict the future. You can create it. It's a different, you know, area of doing this. But predicting the future is riddled with bias and assumptions and industry-specific, well, bias, really. You know, say, hey, this is the kind of future we want to see. And the more we talk about it, the better it's going to be. I mean, you see that so much right now in the media, just looking at kind of the way things are being structured and these power struggles within certain large institutions and the way they're taking stories and bending and twisting them to like, we're shoving this narrative down your throat. Please hurry, this is the most important thing. (laughs) It's like, we have critical thinking we need to apply here. So getting back to the future, we have to think about one is what are the trends, drivers and issues that we see today, right? But we don't just say, well, what are people saying about those? I mean, you do take those into consideration, but then you have to start asking questions like, How might artificial intelligence, say if we go without, and that's a big one people like to talk about. Mm -hmm. And when I say the trends and drivers here today, specifically those where most people are familiar with them, but the full implications are not known yet, right? Right. People like to think, oh, yeah, we already know what AI is going to do. We have no idea. Nope. So then we want to ask the question, well, how might this impact various parts of society in order to give us a picture of a potential future context? See, most of our decisions are made without context. They're made based on yesterday's context. And we we try to project that into the future. We make the grave mistake of assuming that a number of things aren't going to change, even though we pay lip service to it. But if you can start to imagine how AI might impact the way that we relate to each other in the traditional family structure, then you have to define what's the traditional family structure. Then you start to say, why do we have that structure? It causes you to think and ask questions about why we do what we do, and then fundamentally assess how those things will change in an AI-driven world. Right. And right. Then you look at that across the board on everything, the economy, technology, communication, transportation, human genetics. And now you have a context to work with and you're not predicting the future. You're giving yourself a stage where you as one of the actors in that play can now start to envision what kind of story unfolds in this theater. Yeah. That's future context. The other key part of that, too, Rebecca, is that you don't focus on yourself because a lot of people will say, well, how's our industry fair? Who cares? You need to ask how the people you serve fair, because if they right. don't fare, you are gone. Right?
0: Yes, yeah, that's right. So
1: that's how innovation is born. If you say we can anticipate that in this type of future scenario, the people we serve are going to be dealing with these issues. The next step in that is to start talking about the now because people are not waiting for you to come along with an innovative solution. The minute something happens, they want people who have visionary ideas, who are anticipating things that could happen and are talking about your potential future. You as the person that the organization serves. Right, Because that builds trust, that builds insight, that builds the idea that this company here is really thinking ahead.
0: So awesome. Thank you, because that was an amazing riff (laughs) off of just the word innovation. No
1: passion about innovation.
0: None uh, whatsoever. Me neither. And oh, by the way, on the topic of innovation, I want to go back to one of the threads I picked up in that riff, which was apply more critical thinking to the impact of your innovation. So whether it be not even just on your own company, like you mentioned, but out in the world, impact on people. Right. One of the things that we know from the iPhone is that the iPhone has disrupted our lives for yeah. better or for worse. We don't know if anyone actually put a lot of thought into the worse and how to mm-hmm. mitigate the negative impacts on society. So as we're looking forward into AI solutions, I give you some examples. So for instance, um, automated uh, personality algorithms based on social media profiles. Mm-hmm. We know right now, people's social media profiles are not necessarily accurate. Correct. So what kind of critical thinking can you put towards these types of algorithms? And how do we overcome the resistance in organization to think about critical analysis that isn't going to be tagged as anti-innovation or as outright criticism
1: and negativity? That's the problem, right? And it goes back to the first. So I'll start with the last question there. The anti-innovation or the criticism argument is because, (laughs) sadly, that's just you know, groupthink inside of most organizations, you criticize the status quo, then you're not on board. You're not. That's right. The Reality is that nobody wants to be told that their idea may have holes in it. But if you're sincere about innovation, you need to be looking for all those holes, not just to critique your idea, but because the real opportunity may be in one of those holes and you just haven't been thinking about it. But too many, you know, again, it goes back to incentives, right? If you're incentivized for 90-day turnarounds to increase revenue, you know, to if you're a publicly traded company, you're beholden to the board, you're beholden to these standards and incentives in our shareholder-driven world, then you you don't have the luxury to be innovative. And if you criticize or point out something that's obvious, like the emperor has no clothes, well, you're out because you're a threat to the story. Don't be a threat to the story because we like to tell ourselves a certain story, keep our fingers crossed, and hope it all works out. Yes. And when it doesn't, everybody's like, well, you know, we tried our best and nobody could have seen this coming. Yeah, they could have, they totally could have. Right. (laughs) You you probably had people in your organization who did and you fired them. Real innovation does not happen in the status quo. It just doesn't. Right. One of my
0: least favorite terms in organizations that we'll figure it out as we go along.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we'll kick it down the road. That's what we'll figure out. There is room for we'll figure it out as we go along, but it has to be based in the idea that we are fully comfortable with not knowing what we don't know. And we're excited about finding out what that is.
0: Yeah. And I love that angle. And I'm going to go back to that analogy you said about, like, if this were a theater, Mm -hmm. then we all have a part towards shaping what the future might look like. Um, I think one of the problems we've got out in the media, or if we look at the big tech moguls out in the world up on stages, talking about flashing technology. Mm-hmm. So we start to envision a future like of Star Wars or Star Trek or the Jetsons, right? And so we're all kind of bought into this is our what our future is going to look like. And right. we are empowered as people out in the world. I'm not Elon Musk. You know, what, what do I have to do with this vision of the future? And one of the things that I say often is I feel like a lot of folks see themselves as being a boat down, you know, going down a river with no oars. Yeah. We need to bring more people into the conversation. So, what Absolutely. are some of the strategies that we, as people, maybe thing to think about about bringing more people into the conversation and letting people feel empowered that they have a voice in what the future should look like?
1: Yeah, and I love that you uh, that you took the conversation there because that's the most rewarding. Yeah. That's what I'm passionate about in my work. I could care less about wowing you with emerging technology and trends. Right. In fact, I could show you in ten minutes how you can find all that stuff yourself and stop spending. Hundreds of thousands of dollars on a 90 minute keynote that doesn't give you any practical usage for how to think about the future. So when first of all, and I'm glad you talk about people, because when we talk about the future, everything that we talk about is human oriented. When we hear conversations about, well, uh, you know, climate change, for example, major existential threat. But it's not right here in our face and quarantining us like coronavirus. So nobody, so people are just like, "Eh, is it real? You know, and it's it's just madness, right? Sadly, that's the way our human nature and our biology, we're just designed that way. We're great at reacting to things right in front of our face. Right. All that being said, when we think about the future of the planet, the conversation that like we're killing the planet is not a conversation. The planet will be just fine. We will be the ones who will be gone. And so we have to reframe and recognize that all of our discussions and focus on the future has to be human centric in order for us to better understand the actions we need to take. If we're serious about increasing, you know, the longevity and the quality of life and making sure that our children, grandchildren, great grandchildren down the road have a world that they can live in, thrive in and be in harmony with, then we have to first understand that our mission here is, of course, to protect the planet. But our mission is also to protect and enlist more people into solving the problems that we face today. And this is the unique period of time we live in. Throughout human history, it's at least throughout civilized human history, right? When we weren't running around in caves and, you know, hunter gatherers, you know, once we became this agricultural hierarchical society, it's been hierarchical, top down, you the masses wait for me the genius leader to come up with the solution and i'll tell you where to go and that's where we'll go we don't need that anymore we haven't needed that for decades now we live in the information age we're actually coming out of the information age we have so much of it but our biology our mentality mm-hmm. has not caught up with how fast technology has grown so when we think about the future and we think about people we have to get down to the base level of what is actionable right? You have to make the future and the conversation about the future accessible. If you yeah. just focus on, oh man, at some point, you know, this iPhone will be so small due to Moore's law. It'll be embedded into my chest and I'll be able to communicate with you through television. Right. Okay, great. That stuff is cool, but you don't start there because right. what, what does somebody do with that when they don't even realize like how you arrive at that space? So the yeah. first place you have to start with is how we think. This is a big yeah. part of my work and my message is like, What you think about the future is irrelevant. How you think about the future is what changes things. So we have to deconstruct narratives and ideas. We have to first ask ourselves questions. Why do I believe what I believe? Am I creating my idea of the future? Or am I creating some other guy's idea of the future? Because the fact is you're creating the future, whether you're involved in it or not, that's up to you. So we have to make accessible entry points for people to say, okay, I can take that first step. Like, I don't need to be a genius about emerging technology, AI, and 4D printing, and human genetic modification, and its implications on, you know, the global supply chain. You don't need to start there. Right. You'll get there. And that's fun. But the first thing you have to realize is, I need to know why I believe what I believe, why I think what I think, what my role in this world is right now, and start there. It's a very personal starting point. Everything else after that is much richer But you have to start on this foundation. You have to be more conscious. You have to be more aware of what's going on around you. And more importantly, what's going on inside of you.
0: Right. I think it's almost like finding that balance between acknowledging your own fear about the future. Yeah. And also facing it. And I feel like that's one of the things that I've seen from a lot of futurists. You know, I don't know, it seems like a lot of us have just had stuff happen in life that make us kind of a little resilient, I suppose. Yeah. So we're able to look at these challenges that face us in the future, whether it be global warming or um, you know people and how we connect with one another and how the future might look in relation to how we just simply communicate with one another, which has already been disrupted. Oh yeah. So how do we prepare other people to take that lens and face their fears about the uncertainty of the future? and help them understand their power to shape it. Because we think about the environment in particular, the guidance that came out in the beginning of March, that we have about 18 months to take action on the environment. Hmm. And that's really kind of back to your point. That's not about the impact to the planet as much as it is about the impact to our ability to survive on this planet. Right. So I think there's got to be that shift in urgency, but allowing people to really face the fear of what if the environment does not sustain human survival in the long term.
1: Yeah, when it comes to the environment, great question. When it comes to the environment, I think the sad thing, and it's it's brilliant on behalf of those with interest in keeping things where they are, is that the environmental discussion is political. It's not a political discussion, right?
0: Yeah. You know, no. So
1: that's the first thing. But the other question that you had was, how do we prepare people? And I'll just work on that one there. We yeah. cannot prepare people. People have to be prepared. By their own volition. What we can do is give them the tools to build the shed, if you will. And I think that's where we missed the mark, right? Where, well, at least in the futurist world, which, uh, you know, futurists are all over the place. You, you know, and I say this almost on every show because people say, well, how's somebody become a futurist? And I told this to somebody. Choose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just said, yeah, the best, the fastest way is to start calling your cell phone because nobody's going to know the difference, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's, there you go. That's for everybody. Yeah. But yeah. it's really, we have to, I think it goes back to the other thing we're talking about is that you have to make the message ridiculously clear and simple. Yes. This is something I discovered for myself about three years ago. It, I was making it very difficult. People understand what it is that I do. And the reason why is because I wanted people to really get how different and how amazing like this world and these skill sets are. And, and, and like, I want to package that all up into one little, you know, little impossible. Number one, (laughs) I just made it more confusing. Number two, it was all about me. Didn't realize it It was all about me. So as soon as I realized that I was like, it has to be all about them. So if somebody says, well, what do you do? And if I have to answer that in three different sentences, clearly I don't know what it is that I do. I do a lot of things, but they're so amazing. How do I package it into one? Right. Come on. (laughs) You know, nobody cares. What they care about is what's in it for them. And that's the important thing. Right. So When I explain to people, say, what do you do? Well, I teach teams and leaders how to think like futurists. gives them a quick out. They're like, well, that's cool. And they can move on. Or it's like, oh, interesting. Tell me more. Right. You know, it has to be that simple. And it does not have to encapsulate all the wonderful things that you can do for them. You just have to give them an open door that says, well, tell me more about that. Well, great. What's the first thing I should do if, if, I, if I want to take a more active role in, uh, you know, how the future is going to be? Well, The first thing is you need to expand your awareness about the seen and the unseen forces that are shaping the future. And let me tell you what those are. I mean, the seen forces are just the things that are out there today that everybody seems to be obsessed with. AI, big data, climate change, human gene editing, right? 3D printing. Just, you know, have a basic knowledge about those. Just, just go out and understand those things. It's important. Because the full implications of how those will alter our society are not here yet. So there's still time to act. But then even more important is to focus on the unseen forces. And those are the narratives and the ideas and the stories that you tell yourself. Right? We're told every single day, here's what you should believe. Here's what you should think. Here's how you should vote. Here's what the future is going to be. Here's why you should get ready for your job to be taken away because AI is doing this. Mm -hmm. Stop. Stop. Say, okay, great. This is what everybody's saying. Don't just go into a box of denial. Say, "Well, great. Well, what else might be possible? What other things are they not thinking about that uh, you know that haven't been revealed yet?" And the example, if I, if you mind, if I give you a fast example here, I use go this, for it. I tell this because everybody's familiar with it. Facebook was launched in two thousand three, two thousand four, right? Facebook was launched originally uh, to be a competitor with Hot or Not, right? It was just a digital version of your physical Facebooks, for those of you who remember Facebooks from college. And it was for Ivy League college kids to see who's dating who, who likes what, who's hot, who's not, blah, blah, you know, really shallow stuff. Then uh, it gets rolled out to the rest of uh, the university systems, not just Ivy League schools, and then it eventually gets into you know, people like us, if we're not in college or whatever it might be. Well, six years after it's launched, it becomes the number one tool to overthrow a 30 plus year dictatorship in the Middle East. And, and my point about that is this, if you just focus, if you go back to 2003, 2004, they talk about social media, and they're talking about all these things in its own realm. They're talking about the audience that it was intended for and the use it was intended for, like the, the realm that it was created in. But they're not talking about the potential implications that go well outside of that. And that comes back to reinforce the fact that the future, not technology, humans, not technology, are what drive real change. It's how humans use those tools to take action. And they use it to take action to overthrow a 30-plus-year dictatorship. So you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that Mark Zuckerberg is sitting there going, you know what? In 2004, this is great. Now Billy can know if Sally's dating Johnny, and you know whatever. But in about six years or so, this thing's gonna be overthrown governments. <laughs> um, so. But you could have anticipated the possibility of it, and that's how we need to start thinking, right? Right. If you identify opportunity disruption. Ask questions that the other people aren't asking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Even if those other questions of what could this potentially do. disrupt society what could this potentially do to disrupt communication patterns what could this potentially do to set precedence about how we interact as people in the future yeah like i wonder i don't know if anyone would have asked those questions back in back in 2003 and four
1: yeah somebody was i'm sure but in the in the massive big picture everybody's asking more questions about what are the financial opportunities how's this going to you know you know they're asking the things that are right within its realm it's like, ooh, this is cool. And then, you know, the obvious stuff. It's kind of like when yeah. people in, in uh, Q4 of 2019 start putting out, here's our top 10 predictions for 2020. I'm like, that's so lazy. Anybody who can think and read can figure that stuff out. And still a lot of right. them are wrong, right? <laughs> a lot so, of them are wrong. That's <laughs> terrible. But yeah, so it is. Finding those incredible opportunities of where new needs might be created or new yeah. lets might emerge. Sadly, the business world is not incentivized to do that. I've learned that a lot in conversations. People like the idea of having long-term thinking, but when it rubs up against the dominant narrative or paradigm of the business world, it becomes a friction point. You know, it's like, well, there are ways to marry the two. Absolutely. It's not an all all this or all that. Where this field, so what I've been training is strategic foresight and that was born out of the intelligence communities. It's still, I mean, it's highly incentivized in think tanks in the intelligence world. You have to think long-term and that's its natural realm. Right. How do you build out long term, in-depth scenarios to better understand the actions to take today to drive towards a preferred future outcome? Yeah. Well, you know, if that preferred future is longer than 90 days for a lot of organizations, they just don't have the time or the incentive to do it. And that's not because I believe that they are exercising willful ignorance. It's more that they are facing the fact that, hey, I've got bills to pay, people to pay. So we have to really get down to the question of what do we need to change right now? in order to incentivize for longer-term thinking, longer-term planning. How do we incentivize the markets for that? Because people are still going to default to that. Um, right. I think that's our opportunity. I think that's our opportunity right now with this coronavirus too.
0: Yeah. Well, let me talk about another opportunity that I've been thinking about in relation to our current environment. Obviously, we've got multiple people starting to work from home. Uh-huh. We've got students. We've, you've got students at home. I've got students at home. Now, for some length of time, we'll be learning remotely. We have mm-hmm. college students. My son is at Indiana University, also learning remotely for the rest of the semester. So here we all all are in our home working remotely uh, at our various you know things that we've got going on. But this is happening at mass scale. So I yeah. feel like it's an opportunity right now. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to start collecting data about how this impacts all of us over the next several weeks. Yeah. And I, I can't get that opportunity out of my head. What do you think about that? What are we going to learn as a futurist? Apply your foresight over the next... Oh.
1: I'll, I'll I'll just apply my uh, my common sense. There you go. That's okay. Right? Yes, which is, which is ambiguous. I guess that works. You know, common sense is relative to everybody. Yeah. So one thing is, and you know, just to give a little bit of background here. So I've never held a corporate job in my entire professional career. I have always worked for myself. I spent 11 years as an insurance broker. My wife tells me it's because I'm oppositional defiant. I think she's uh, well, she's a social worker, so she can say that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I disagree, but. That's what her, you know, her, of view course of. you do. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I was joking with somebody else about that the other day. It's like, Oh, only the funny people, the people that know, will guess that, that I'm, you know, being defined there. Yeah. Anyway, layered jokes, layered humor here. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, I work with a lot of people. A lot of my clients are senior level executives in large publicly traded organizations and in, you know, private organizations too. They do not come to me to help them become better corporate citizens they just don't because yeah. it's not like I have a background in that, but it does. I am able to bring a unique lens about the amount of time that is wasted and energy that is wasted in a lot of those areas. It, it's not it's not very futuristic, but I also believe in this is that foresight is only applicable if you can execute now. And a big part of that goes to things that are not sexy, like new technology It comes down to, hey, is this meeting really necessary? Because your ability to draw things out and build towards a long-term vision means that you have to manage your energy and think more critically about the actions you're taking today. And one thing that I think is going to come out of this is that organizations and people are no longer going to be able to make excuses for ridiculous, unnecessary meetings, conferences where people are traveling for four days two of which are in and out of airports. And when they're actually in the conference, they are packed and overloaded with so much information. They walk away more confused than when they went there. So I think the beauty of this is people are going to realize, Hey, we waste a lot of time in stupid meetings that don't result in anything, but another meeting. This is going to, I hope, shed light and reinforce the argument that guys, if you're going to have a meeting, have clear objectives, clear outcomes know why you're there and only have the people there that need to be there. Stop wasting time, energy and money. Like everybody's freaking out right now because everybody's pumping the brakes, pulling back cash. You want to save money? Spend it in ways that give you the highest ROI. Stop wasting it on stupid meetings. Let's just be honest and real. Stop wasting it on on ridiculous conference calls that go on for hours. And it's really just a conference call to figure out what you actually want to talk about in the next conference call.
0: Right. And And only two people talk. Exactly. And 20 people are invited.
1: Correct. It's, you know, so I do think that now is also an opportunity. So I think that's one thing we're going to see. The other thing is that we're going to see the massive deficit we have in communication, the ability to communicate, not communication technology, right, but the ability to communicate clearly. There's an acronym yeah. in the military, so I'm an Army brat. Um, in, this, in this here, and I'm going to point out the irony here. We're talking about like two people talking the most on a conference call. I clearly have been talking the most here, and I apologize. So. No, you're the
0: guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you're you supposed know. to be doing this. Okay, good. sure.
1: Okay. I'll, I'll give it a pass, right? Thanks. That's right. So, I grew up in the Army. So that was my entire upbringing from the age of two all the way through high school. school moved around every six months to three years. That was the life I lived. Loved it. I love military. I can walk into any Army base anywhere in the world know exactly where everything is. I mean, that's my home. And there's this acronym my dad shared with me. I loved it. And this is what you'd find in the commander's meetings is that there's a principle. It's called the bluff, bottom line up front. You walk in before giving a talk, whatever it might be, you start with the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Basically, here's my case. Here's my conclusion, whatever it is you're in there to talk about. And then you start adding in details, specifically details that are asked for. And this to me is is a principle that should be applied across the board in every organization. Start with the bottom line up front. What is it you want me to know? Tell me that. And then if I need to know anything else, I'll ask. And then we move on. I
0: love that approach. Harvard Business Review has a meeting cost calculator. Mm -hmm. So if you want to find it, you just go out online, search Harvard Business Review meeting cost calculator. It is one of the most amazing things I've come across because it's a very easy way to show how you translate those huge meetings to cost. Mm -hmm. People don't think about the cost associated with these meetings, thousands of dollars. Sometimes it's obscene. I know. But if we're spending our time meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting, what we're not doing is spending our time doing critical thinking.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, and you have so many vested interests in, well, I'm the meeting planner. I need to plan and slam as much as I can. here. And I have a great deal of uh, respect and appreciation for meeting planners because I am not a naturally organized person. I've had to become incredibly disciplined and organized out of survival which is right. good because i can show other people how to do that as well especially people who are left-handed and attention deficit like myself so it's a skill set right but when i get around somebody who is very good at planning meetings like really good and strategic about it i just stand in all i'm like wow i need one of you can i just have you to come just take over my life here. this would be great so great right. deal of respect for them but there's also we always have to look and say well they're getting pressured from one side, pressured from another, managing everybody in between. It's kind of like HR people, right? That's why yeah. HR is such a bad rap, you know, is that got, they have to be the buffer and the punching bag in between all levels of the organization. So, you know, I have a great deal of respect for them. But I think that uh, there needs to be a smarter approach to and much more questioning of why we're doing this, right? It goes back to right. the nerves. What are we trying to do this for? Is it because I need to keep my job? Or how does this play into the larger big picture of what our organization is trying to do? But yeah. a lot of that falls on the people at the top because they have to, number one, it goes back to our original thing we are talking about with the future is you have to make the future accessible. Well, same thing in an organization. You have to make the goals and the vision of the organization accessible. You need to tap in and create conceptual ownership, if anything, among your people. And that's by realizing like, hey, there's a lot of great value and it's okay for them to question why we're doing what we're doing. Back to your innovation point, right? right. But if Absolutely. organizations don't want to do that, well... And they're not serious. They just aren't.
0: Right. Especially in, in organizations where there's um, a high level of bureaucracy. And yeah. so, of course, speaking up against something that's happening will be perceived as being insubordinate. Yeah. And that's a problem. I get into lots of corporate culture problems that kind of feed into this conversation, but we'd be on the phone or on the Zoom call for hours.
1: <laughs> yeah. Probably
0: hours. Oh, Maybe yeah. the longest podcast ever.
1: But you know what? You'd probably get the highest amount of views. Be like, yeah, I had to deal with that. You know, and of course, I always have to reiterate, like, I never subjected myself to that. It's because I have such, such a low tolerance for BS and micromanagement. And, um, you know, like, I. and that's the irony, right? I work great in teams, but it has yeah. to be a team of competent individuals and we're all working together towards an end result. I do not work great when we, you know, are just doing things for the sake of doing them. And I was like, I yeah. oh, would just never survive in a corporate culture unless they gave me complete autonomy. Cause nobody has to convince me to work. I'll outwork everybody, you know, that's why right. you know, it's like I, nobody pays me to get out of bed. Trust me. I know how to work. Right. But I don't I, want to, don't control me. You know,
0: I think that really comes down to kind of personal motivators. Right. So um, people like you and me are probably self starters is mm-hmm. that we get an idea. We get something we want to follow. We will go follow it till the end of time. Yeah. But don't tell me how to do it.
1: Right. right. Don't
0: tell me how to do it. Don't tell me no.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, to some extent, you know what I mean. I mean, I think I'm willing to listen to feedback, but I think that's one of the things that in a corporate environment, sometimes it's overly prescriptive.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, big time, big time. Well, because the focus is on the process, the focus is on how you're going to arrive at the end, and the way we operate is like, I don't care how you arrive at the end; just tell me how fast you're going to get me there.
0: Yeah, yeah, if, that's a great way to put it.
1: If people obsess on like. Well, it's, you know, I had this conversation with somebody else the other day, you know, because a lot of the work that I do is also, you know, consulting, and I say consulting is kind of a loose term, right? Because a lot of what I do is more advising and coaching. You know, I'm not just coming in, doing the work, handing it over to you and saying, here you go, here's what I recommend you do. Uh, A lot of it is empowering folks with tools and ideas and ways to think about things so they can make it their own and actually have some longevity with it, but when you get into speaking with people and you're in that conversation that's leading up to uh, a contract of some sort, you can tell two types of different people that you're dealing with. Number one, and I learned these thankfully from people that mentored me and that I got to study under, which was great, huge benefit. Uh, but real buyers, the people you want to deal with who make decisions are not going to obsess about deliverables. They're not going to obsess about uh, nitpicking. Well, how are you doing it? And can I have a week by week play? Can I do mm-hmm. this? Can you, No, no, no. Those are not buyers. They're not. They can say no, but they can't say yes, right? Real buyers are going to say, look, I want to know how this is, you know, I don't care how you get there. We just need to agree on the end goal. And I trust you that you can get me there. And if you fail at that, we'll deal with that, right? You know, that's the difference. And I think everybody needs to operate that way inside an organization is stop obsessing about process And I mean, unless again, unless you're in the medical field or in a science, obviously there are fields where it's like, you better follow the process. (laughs) And that is important. But for the vast majority of us, I think that organizations could do so much better if they say, guys, listen, it's okay to fail and mean it. Not like look for ways to fail. You are graded on the end goal and what you create your outcome. And I do not want to incentivize you to waste more time. You're incentivized. Like if you get it done in five hours or five days, whatever, right? I don't care how you get there. Yeah. As long as you're not compromising quality. But I think a lot of people are like, well, no, I need to look busy. I need to justify my position. We just have a lot of things we need to fix.
0: Yeah. How many hours did I work this week? Or how does that compare to the hours that were worked by people around me? Instead of environments that really support positive change, where you have high trust, Mm
1: -hmm. high
0: autonomy, but also high accountability, both from the individuals and from the organization itself. Yeah. Those are high functioning environments.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's that's how we have to be operating. Uh, but if that goes against, like, the norms of the organization, then, you know, you might get kicked out. Or you might choose to leave. Yeah. Well, which, you know, is a good thing, right? I mean, yep. but, uh, it's, it's a complicated situation. <laughs> so, yeah. People are a mess. That's the bottom line.
0: Yeah. People are both complicated and simple. Yeah. Both. Because we are talking before about the whole, like, back when we were cavemen, the reality is our brains work very much the same today as they did then.
1: Wait a minute. When you back when we were cavemen, I'm still a caveman. Ur- <laughs> <Ugh>.
0: <laughs> I can't yeah. do caveman very well, but.
1: Uh, that's good. I, you know, I appreciate the fact that you tried. That shows a uh, real heart for innovation, Rebecca. So, congratulations. an effort. I'm, I'm not afraid to fail. Yes. Yes. See? And, and another sign of a great future is somebody who can draw analogies to their work in almost the most mundane possible ways. There you that's go. That's right. There you go. You got this thing down. Thank you.
0: I appreciate that. Huh. So, let me ask you another question, and this one would be a little bit more personal. Sure. So I would love to have, not even just from your futurist perspective, but as a parent. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that hits me and one of the reasons why I started looking deeper into futurism and understanding the path of technology, where it's gone, where it might be headed. The reason I looked into this and wanted to really think about the empowerment that I had about the future is because of my kids. Yeah. And what is the future we're creating for future generations? What are the things you think about in relation to the future as a parent?
1: Wow. Give me some borders because I could go in a thousand different directions. So <laughs> you know, Tighten that question up for me so right. I can stay in the lane here.
0: Okay, sure. There's lots of different ways I could go. I'll give you a choice. How's that?
1: Okay, perfect.
0: Data privacy is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, social media. Yep. Another one is um, visions of what success looks like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So data privacy, I do think, you know, and all of us have been guilty of this, that uh, stop sharing pictures of your kids online. Just stop. Um, I think, you know, more in and this I'd never thought about this. And I I has shared stuff online, but I share it privately, you know, like with just my friends. So as a parent and as a business owner, I Facebook to me is not a place where I really I don't go scrolling through Facebook. Facebook is the most powerful ad platform in the world. Get smart on it. It's a great tool. But I don't I yeah. had not posted anything on my personal page probably for two years. But I do have pictures of me and the kids and whatnot, just and it's shared with my friends. I'll probably take some of that stuff down. But Stop sharing stuff with your kids because there is going to come a point like there is now where kids are saying, hey, I really don't appreciate the digital footprint you created for me. (laughs) We just didn't think about it. So that's one thing. Social media, social media is here. It is, you know, there's no turning back unless you have just a massive meltdown in society completely. And all of our electronics and technology fail and we go into the most dystopian type of future. Right. It's a part of who we are. So I think the, the key for this is. Teaching kids, it comes back to critical thinking. I I think the answer to all three of your things, it comes back to critical thinking. Ask yourself, why are you doing this? Who are you doing this for? Why is this important? And how does this align with what it is you're ultimately trying to do long term? Humans, we are biologically designed to be social. That's why social media works so well. This idea that we are designed to be individuals out in the rugged wilderness, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps with nobody else's help, its a complete myth. It's never actually happened. Right. We have all relied on somebody somewhere at some point in time, even if it was people that paved the roads that I could drive my new innovative vehicle down 20 years before. I didn't do that myself. So we have to recognize that we are a socially driven society. So I do think that we need to get more involved in how do we use these amazing tools of communication and connection to improve the condition of our people. To improve and create an infrastructure, a communication or a new norm that helps people to thrive and connect and support and build together, collaborate, truly collaborate in solving big problems like climate change, for instance, to do these things. And by the way, as a side note, there are people that are doing this already, which is great. So I don't want to take anything away. And I love those stories. But on a mass scale, I think that we really need to have that as a big conversation. Too often, I think the conversation goes to, oh, we need to monitor social media. We need to shut it down. It's like, you're not going to do that. You're not. Stop. The analogy I like to use is this, is that all technology, social media included, it's just a tool. That's it. When's the last time you saw a hammer get up off the shelf and go build a shed? I'm not saying that can't happen with robotics and artificial technology, but we're (laughs) not there yet. But for the purpose of the analogy, when's the last time? You didn't. A tool requires human intention behind it in order to create something. So nobody's going to sit and be like, that stupid hammer. We've got to monitor that hammer we got to make sure that that hammer, you know, uh, is no help us understand what the hammer is good for in the multiple ways we can use it. And then we can use it intelligently. We have to put it in its context. We have to understand its larger implications. We have yeah. to understand how it can help us answer bigger questions like, hey, are we solving big problems? Or are we all just racing to the bottom trying to make as much digital currency as possible to buy crap we don't need? And then quarantine ourselves because we didn't think about supply chain. And, you know, (laughs) it's the insanity. It goes, it's a full loop. So I really do think that, you know, when it comes to things like social media, we have to accept that it's here and just Mm -hmm. teach our kids how to think about it. Definitely be vigilant. There are predators, 100%. But teach your kids how to spot them real quick. Teach your kids this is a tool. It's not a life. It's a tool. The last thing you asked was um, because you had privacy, social media. What else did you have?
0: What else did I have?
1: I don't know. I might have skipped one.
0: And there was a third one. There it was. It um, it's so funny that I can't even remember it. Yeah, Maybe it was. wasn't as good. Maybe those were the good ones.
1: Maybe, yeah. You
0: know? <laughs> Maybe it'll come back to me.
1: Possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah happens to me all the time, right? <laughs> so, yeah.
0: again, oh, I know what it was. Oh, it was a Visions of Success, and so I. Oh think, yes, yeah. perfect.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you remember that because that's the most important.
0: Oh, good. Me too. It really is.
1: It really is. Good. This one is huge. Yeah. You know, I'm 41 years old, so I'll use myself as an example here. I grew up, I had a great childhood. Don't get me wrong, right? I mean, left-handed, ADD, all that kind of stuff, right? three
0: out of my four kids are left-handed.
1: They are magical. Yes, they're amazing, definitely. There is some, and for anybody listening to this, look at this, here's the ADD, right? Is (laughs) there's been some interesting studies that I find absolutely fascinating that left-handed people have consistently been 10% of the population throughout human history. Wow. are definitely special and a legit minority group who i do think has some serious gripes we could make with the rest of the world about scissors desks uh it's all true. kinds of stuff the struggle's so real that's for another show we're definitely doing that yeah Got so I, that's what i'm gonna do that's gonna be my new venture while we're in quarantine i'm starting the left-handed podcast hey so yeah i'd probably do a lot better than my futurist business right because people are like ah, the future that's okay but talk to me about something i can do right now <laughs> 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 anyway, success. Yes, we're getting back to success. Yeah. So in my own experience is that one thing that I was accustomed to growing up, just by nature of the way things were, was that everything I did, I was doing it the wrong way. I was a terrible mm. student. I did not. The only classes I did really well in were the ones that were contextual. History, English, English creative writing. Math, horrible. Science, horrible. Mostly because I wasn't really interested. I didn't understand how it fit into the bigger picture. So my definition of success early on was... I didn't really have one, nor did I really subscribe to one. It wasn't until I was in college and dropped out of college and then re-entered college. And then it was the, you, you start becoming very aware that, you know, I got along with everybody. It's so, like, oh man, we love Jared. He's great. he's hilarious. We have a lot of fun with him stuff. But I just, I just don't think he's going to amount to much. And that hit me hard. So all of a sudden I had just like, man, I got to prove people, prove to people that, yeah, I will. I can totally do. Because I never, ever doubted my ability to do something. Um, I just didn't. I wasn't on some typical career success path. It just never was. I applied to one college and got in and that was it. That was me, you know? And so I allowed this definition of success to be me proving other people wrong, that I could be very successful at what I do. And I was, but nobody cared because they didn't even know I was trying to prove them wrong. And so yeah. the reason why I harp on narratives and ideas and expanding your awareness about those internal, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? That comes down from a deep place of personal experience. I am still at 41, find myself doing things going, I don't even want to be doing this. Why am I doing this? Who am I trying to prove this to? And I just kind of hit the wall, right? Not literally hit the wall, but it's so deeply seated. For example, I played music from you know eighth grade and I still play and compose. I can't read a lick of music, but it was something that always came natural to me. And I often think, and again, this is not a critique of my parents. I mean, not at all, right? But would my life have been different had that been nurtured and encouraged? Because I had a talent for it, a real talent for it. Had my life been different, had that been really encouraged and nurtured and the pathway encouraged for me to go down that road because I loved it, other than at some point you'll have to get a real job, you know, <laughs> maybe things would have been different. I probably would have been broke, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, right? With, you know, music, musicians can't make a living anymore. So, yeah. you know, all that being said is that As a parent, what I want my kids to understand is that they live in the most incredible time in human history. They have the opportunity to shape and create what they want to do. I think that parents are overly involved in their children's success. I am definitely not going to be a parent that shoves my kids into sports year round and we start traveling everywhere else. That is so weird to me. My parents never did that. And part of that could have been because I was in the military. But I want my kids to, if they find something they're really into, I want to make sure that they've got what they need to get really good at it or to really realize fast that they suck and they should just get out of it. You know, I want to encourage my kids to fail, not by saying, hey, guys, you should fail, fail a little bit more. No, but dealing with failure, success for them has to be achieved by them accomplishing something. It cannot be something that somebody else puts on them, not a parent, especially not a parent and not somebody else. I think the fastest way for them to learn success, and what I'm doing with my own kids, and thanks for letting me have this rant. You bet. It's number one. Even at the ages of nine and six, I love my kids. I'm very affectionate with my kids, but the minute they start feeling sorry for themselves for something that they did, I get down their level and I let them know nobody feels sorry for you. They don't. Whose fault was this? And they know. And they're like, it was my fault. I was like, okay, so what are we going to do differently next time? I want them to take ownership. Even when somebody else does something to them and they react, I said, the only thing you can Mm. do is control how you act. You need to own that, you know, because the sooner they can learn to take ownership and not make excuses, the better off they're going to be. They will discover success on their own. And the key principle of success is that you realize, hey, look, you can trace almost everything back to your fault and not in a negative way, right? I can get mad that a designer didn't do something the way that I wanted them to do. And then when I just stop and look and go, well, it's my fault. I didn't have to hire them. And the signs were there that they weren't going to be able to do what it is that I need to do. And I'm not picking on design; I'm just using a random field, right? I was going to wonder, what did the designer do to you? No, nothing. What did they do? No, I've worked some great folks. Take designers out of it. It's more like, at the end of the day, everything that happens comes back to me. Yeah. And that's the most freeing thing in the world because I can start redefining well, what does success look like and who's yeah. ultimately responsible for that. I am. Yeah.
0: I got to say, my personal belief is that the ability to take accountability
1: mm-hmm. is
0: a key skill in order to be able to accept failure when it happens. Yeah. Because that's I think if, sense. yeah, if you're not able to take personal accountability, uh, you fear failure and you stay mm-hmm. away from it. You don't take risks and you blame other people. Right. And that doesn't get anybody anywhere.
1: No, look at our commander in chief, right? I mean, that's a perfect example. You know, Gary Vee talks about this a lot. And I think it's why one reason yeah. I really like him is, uh, you know, he was a terrible student in school, you know, he's worked for himself. I really like, you know, our personalities are similar in that regard. But the ownership factor you know, yeah, work for yourself. And that's all I've ever done. And I'm like, yeah, of course, everything is my fault. There's nobody to blame for anything. You know, when I walk out in the world and I see a lot of other folks and I have conversations, or I see people I'm like, wow, it's so easy for people just to blame other people for their stuff. It's like, this is sad. Too easy. We're, we're weak, right? As a society, because we have not been taught how to take responsibility. We've been coddled. That's at all levels. And we encourage them. That's where critical thinking comes back. It's okay to fail. You know, It is. And you should be okay with that. Most other successful countries, China, Israel, I can name a ton of them, right? I'm just thinking of some that I look at recently. They judge success around how many times they failed because the number of times you fail shows the number of times you've tried, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Musk didn't wake up and become successful. He still fails at a lot of things. That's okay.
0: Yeah, but he also doesn't fear it.
1: No, he looks for it. The faster you can fail, the faster you can figure out what went wrong and do something Right,
0: right. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's a good
1: place to stop. Thank you
0: so much for joining me. This has been fantastic.
1: This was fun. I love it.
0: Among the fun banter and enthusiasm over topics ranging from innovation to left-handedness, Jared delivers a clear call to action for all of us. If you have an interest in helping to shape the future, all you need is the desire to make a difference and the courage to act. You don't need to be an expert in technology, and to his point, you can gain that knowledge if you choose to. However, what's most important is that you know that you have the ability to get involved in conversations about the future. And beyond the conversations, you have the ability to take action to help shape the future that you envision. Jared gave you some tools and advice to help you get started. So, Mm -hmm. What is your role in helping to shape the future? The next step is up to you. To learn more about Jared's amazing work, go to thenewfuturist.com. That's thenewfuturist.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.